I really I was joking. Joking. I didn't forget that I was joking. Such, I'm never going to vote for a guy that is going to ban somebody just my thoughts because you're such a sexual I know and will have Trump on this show and everybody else will be This patient suffers from morning Joe disorder. An entire episode of this empty and fraudulent morning news program is playing in her head right now. As yet, we have no known treatment, but there is always hope. Maybe not for this particular basket case, but perhaps for the next one to come along. Colin Mack. The show is called The Nose Guy. Stop interrupting me. Let me introduce the show. I'm joking. Can't you tell I'm joking? All right. I feel very bad for that person to have an entire episode of Morning Joe in your head. That would be really, really awful. Uh, so it's one of the things that we're talking about today, kind of in a larger context. Uh, where do we go for for sanity and clarity uh, in the midst of, of national chaos? Certainly not there. But anyway, uh, Tanisha Dugan is joining us, joining us. She's a producing associate at TheaterWorks. James Hanley is co-founder at uh, Trinity, Trinity Studio of Trinity College. I'm very tired, I should say. I'm going to have a lot of trouble doing all this today. Irene Papoulis is lecturer at the Alan K. Smith Center for Writing and Rhetoric at Trinity College. That's our news panel today. So what we decided that we would do first, because last weekend Larry Wilmore kind of reentered the national conversation with his White House correspondence dinner speech um, and his controversial ending to said speech. And, of course, that's been debated and palpated and stuff. But it made me realize that it had been a long time since I had actually watched the Larry Wilmore show, the nightly show. In fact, in fact, probably I watched it at the beginning, which is a bad time to watch anybody's project because it really is, you know, you're, it's a shakedown cruise, right? You don't really exactly know what you're going to do. Um, so we decided we would watch some episodes and kind of see, see how Larry's doing uh, since obviously eyes kind of swung towards him uh, as a result of last weekend. So um, one of the things that he does, uh, he has various kinds of discussions and conversations on the show. So kind of just to get you in the mood, uh, this is from um, a segment called Pardon the Integration. Uh, it's with Will Moore, uh, Mike Yard, and Rory Albanese. Uh, they're talking about voter IDs. All right. Okay, tonight's topic, voter ID laws. Are they racist? Okay, Mike will take the anti-voter ID side, and Rory will be for uh, destroying black people's civil rights. Ready? I'm oh, that's, so ready. That's horrible. I don't want to do that. What? And begin. Voter ID laws are ridiculous, okay? The Constitution doesn't say you need an ID to vote. You know what's ridiculous, Mike? Trying to tape a TV show in front of a bunch of Germans, okay? <laughs> that's what's ridiculous, all right? And I'll tell you what else is ridiculous, is people not having IDs, okay? It's a basic thing you should have if you're an American, like a bank card, an AR-15, or a fat kid. All right, okay? fine, we get it. We get it, but what about poor people in urban communities? The only vote they're allowed to cast without an ID is for the NBA All-Star team. This is when you laugh, just because they, they can't afford to get an ID card. Really, Mike? It's $20. Maybe don't spend it on grills and nail art. Hey, hey, How hey, about hey. that? <laughs> All right, so kicking a few uh, racial tripwires there and getting a few laughs and maybe not getting a few laughs that they deserve. Um, so this is, so I, Irene Babulis, I'm going to go to you first because I think you've been watching Larry Wilmore kind of straight along, maybe not every night, but kind of keeping up with him, right? <clears throat> yeah, and I agree that he has evolved. I like the way he sort of got rid of that keep it 100 versus tea, tea bag thing. He sort of made that into a little thing at the end, which was going to be a more serious part of the of the talk show part. Um, I think he's he's kind of an interesting character in relation to the other to other comedians. First of all, because he's he has this avuncular quality where he's he's kind of slightly above the fray. He's kind of like your you, you know like some uh, you know, uh, 
You, like you, would, you would not be surprised if you went to your local bank and he turned out to be the president of the bank or the, exactly. the manager of a large bank branch, right? Right. And just, just the way he keeps, he has a certain calmness and remove, even when he's kind of like not being that funny and he sort of knows it, but he just keeps going and he's calm and I don't know. But, but I think he's, he brings up, he's really commenting on the culture in a way that I really like. And, and, you know, uh, Tanisha, as that segment indicated, he can kind of go there about certain things. Yeah. Uh, he and his crew can kind of go there about certain things in, in ways that previously have not been possible in, in the format that he's following. It's true. I have to, like, pause for a second because there was, like, this strange level of colorism as we talked about Larry Wilmore and, like, him being above the fray that I was like, hmm, that's funny, but it also, like— sends up my spidey senses a little bit of like, ooh, you know, and uh, so I just had to sort of like highlight that moment a little well, bit. Wait, wait, no, yeah, say what you mean. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, and it's so one of the things I say about the president as well is that there is like a kind of acceptable, acceptable black person and what Larry Wilmore absolutely represents that kind of black person. So he is the kind of black person that you could imagine being president of the bank. Mm-hmm. He is the color of this table, which is a um, <laughs> light brown color. It's an oaky color. Um, so from that just straight visual standpoint, he's inoffensive. And he comes with a level of ex, you know education and politeness that uh, we expect in public uh, discourse. So it's not surprising that he, A, appears above the fray, but he also tends to bring some real black correspondence around him mm-hmm. when he's talking about things. And that's the thing that I love about his particular show. He is doing a, a singular thing, um, and he's best when he's talking about those kinds of topics. The show really rings when he's talking about race, when he's talking about the unblackening of the White House. That's yeah. where, you know, that's where his, his, his best efforts lie. Could you say, what, what, what do you think, what's, what's the singular thing that he's doing? Well, he's talking about race in America, and he's doing it in a way that is digestible, with the exception of the correspondence dinner, <laughs> digestible <laughs> to most of America. I remember, because I watched it early on, and, and like Colin, haven't been keeping up with it as much, but I remember tweeting that first night and saying, oh my God, here is a roundtable of all black men talking about, and they talked about race, of course, but talking about all topics that are important to Americans. This is revolutionary. And that, that to me, is what makes him important. Yeah, it was great that he had Ken Burns on last night and, you know, talking about, you know, uh, uh, Jackie Robinson. Robinson. <laughs> I was like, yeah. what's the first thing? Jackie, <laughs> 44, Jackie Robinson. Um, and Ken Burns actually surprised me by saying, you know, the thing that makes Jackie Robinson great isn't that he was just a black baseball player, but he is a co- colored baseball player, a brown baseball player. So he opened the door to... Latinos playing baseball and and really taking over the game. That to me was like an interesting, oh, and this is coming from this other body that you would typically say would would only see it one way. This is fascinating. This is the kind of rapport that Larry Wilmore, you know, engenders in folks. Uh, By the way, don't email us. It's 42. She's having a senior (laughs) moment. But anyway. Oh, 44 uh, is Obama. I'm having a pregnancy (laughs) (laughs) moment. I apologize. So, James, I'm just interested in your general reaction, but 
one thing that we do know is that this notion of a late night show where people will talk, there might be interviews, there'll be guests, there'll be commentary. It's just this pot that we keep dropping on the floor, smashing and gluing back together in a new way. Uh, and, and so and it's incumbent on anybody who joins the ranks to try to do something new with this. And you do feel the pressure on Wilmore to come up with something that hasn't been done. I think that's true, and I sort of uh, I, I think what I'm uh, reading from what uh, Tanisha was saying is I I agree with, which is that it's more what he has done and what he does in his role as a late night host rather than him, because I think he's actually not an especially strong personality himself, um, and I think there are some issues uh, with I think he's he's got to grow a lot I think before he really becomes successful as a personality as a as a uh, as a social critic but also as a um, uh, in his delivery in the way that he introduces humor in, into criticism but the amazing thing that he has done is that he's opened this door I mean I mean it really is revolutionary to have a table filled with black men on on TV talking about issues and actually bringing race to the forefront and actually bringing in people discussing things in very direct ways in the midst of a time when racism is being given a, a free pass in lots of areas of the political uh, the political realm and so it's really important what he's doing um I'm not sure that it worked so well uh, at the correspondence dinner uh, for different reasons, but um, he's a very interesting character. I think who will eventually, I think, gain a lot of strength as a uh, as a comedian and as a, as a late night host. But the late night host is there seems to be a sort of requirement that that happen. <laughs> Yeah. really, which I think is a part of the problem. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, like Conan O'Brien, he kind of kind of comes out of a writing background first, more than a performing background. And I agree about his comic chops. I think that what we saw when he was a court, when he was senior black correspondent on The Daily Show was that, in fact, that sort of bank manager or bank president quality, it worked really great in his yeah. interplay with, with Jon Stewart. You know, for four or five minutes, you know, in this very dry way, uh, he could get some very stinging kinds of humor across. When you're carrying the show, it's different. And one thing I have to say is, I, you know, in the history of comedians, few people have had the kind of vocal chops, the virtuosic vocal chops of Jon Stewart. That man used his voice the way Charlie Parker used a saxophone. You know, it just he was just all over the place in terms of volume, pitch, imitations. I mean, that's a very tough thing to do. But I do notice, having taken a little vacation and come back, Irene, that Will Moore is, he, he is spicing up his deliveries a little bit more. He's using his voice at different volumes. He's, he's realizing that he's not a writer anymore, and he's not a guy who's on for three minutes anymore. He's a guy who really has to carry an entire show. And, and, and I'm noticing that his delivery, let's forget about the White House Correspondents' Dinner for a second, mm-hmm. just talk about the show. His delivery, actually, he is landing some of these jokes pretty well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, I, and not only, also, it's also the face. Like, that's the thing that Jon yeah. Stewart was so good at, the reaction face, you know, to something really crazy that he saw, that he's had a video of. And I think Larry Mil- Wilmore is getting good at that, too. It's but not just the voice. It's funny. I, th- I think the face is probably the thing about John Stewart that I would counter is, is actually better than his vocal ability because mm-hmm. he had this sort of panacea, Jewish, any, like any kind of ethnic person <laughs> all fell within this sort of gritty back of his throat uh, sound. So I don't know if that so much was the, was the read, 
But his face, his ability to sort of land the jokes with a wink or a twitch or a nod. Or a stare. Or a stare, exactly, is the difference. And Larry does not have that performance quality. Exactly. And, you know, one of the interesting things I always thought about Jon Stewart is that most of the time he had that edge and could do that and carry it off flawlessly, except for those times when he started fawning over a celebrity guest. Mm -hmm. And that, I turned it off every time because it annoyed me so intensely that his personality would suddenly change. Mm. And it was an illustration of the, the how could this man who's so good be a, at a disconnect like that? And Larry Wilmore has a kind of relationship like that in a way sometimes with the audience, I think. I, mean, I think in our email exchanges, I said a kind of neediness. You know, that, that, that to me, if you are delivering something, particularly a sharp-edged barb to somebody, you don't say, am I right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like because you've heard the audience reaction, it's like you're trying to moderate the joke. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's experience. You know, in time, I think that he will he will realize that. But it was very interesting to me that 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 um, John Stewart, who had been doing it for so many years, still could completely change personality. I, I think John Stewart is a terrible interviewer. I really do. And I was a, a typically a two thirds Daily Show watcher. I would just switch <laughs> off when the interview came on. But to that point, Irene, and this is uh, this will sort of allow us to do a little transition here. So the way that I remember it anyway, when he first started out, Wilmore would try to have kind of for these panel discussions. So part of the show is a conversation with a bunch of people sitting around a table and, and Larry's not talking that much or he's not talking any more than, than anybody else is. Um, and I think initially they were sort of pulled from all over the place. And, and now it's sort of usually the guest and then two members of his staff, you know, or, or a few members of, or, who are primed and ready to go. And, and, and I think it's an interesting format because those people, they've got material, right? They're ready. They're spring-loaded with the material. But I found myself vis-a-vis the Ken Burns thing thinking, you know what? I bet Larry Wilmer is a better interviewer than Jon Stewart. I'd just like to hear him ask Ken Burns a bunch of questions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think when the with the, with the guests with the two people rarely works that well in my in my opinion. It was it was definitely the case with Ken Burns, and I feel like it was because for, sometimes he just has three of his correspondents, and then it can be really funny when there's mm-hmm. three of them and they're all just kind of like being being funny. But when you have a guest, you just I just feel like I want him to just talk to the guest, and the other ones are just kind of butting in. They're trying to add, they're trying to be funny, but it seems like it gets in the way. As Rob Reiner would say, you want the second, third, and fourth tier questions. Right. Right. You yeah, want to yeah, see exactly. Larry Wilmore <laughs> ask, yes. you know, probe yeah. Ken Burns a little more. It's yeah. true. Well, there is our segue. So the yeah. other part of this conversation, we, we were sort of um, emailing back and forth, and kind of the whole question of so one of the things Larry tries to do, do Bill Maher tries to do it too, is to make the conversation among a group of people the thing rather than the one-on-one interview uh, or and in addition to monologues and other tools like that. So another place that this kind of sort of goes on, oh, I can't even, even talk about it. <laughs> uh, but another place where there's this kind of idea that people are sitting around the table having this pseudo conversation is on Morning Chow. And, and rather celebratedly this week, um, I'm just wondering how much of my own distaste to uh, inject into this conversation. But one of the things that happened this week was that Rob Reiner uh, appeared on Morning Joe. And it did something that kind of happens more and more. I mean, Stewart famously did it to Tucker Carlson and Paul Begala. Uh, but he, he just went on and just talked a little bit about how he didn't really think they were doing a very good job, particularly vis-a-vis Donald Trump. Let's hear a little bit of that. 
I want to hear how he's going to so, deport 12 million people. Ron, I want to hear but, but, how but, but, he's going to. How is you're he going to wait? Trump finish now because you're just talking. You're not letting anybody else talk. I, we have asked those questions. I could. I would bet you your proceeds from your next 20 films that I could okay. find you any question that you bring up now about the wall, which Mika tried to nail him down. Uh, Bob the, the, the Muslim ban. We gave Bob yeah. Woodward 20 minutes. We said and, go for and, it. And what he does ask. is he talks around in circles. So the questions are okay. Asked. So. So, and they're repeated. No, and we've I, asked repeatedly. Okay, so then the so, next question is, yeah? why are you talking around in circles? Right. Why are you not answering my do. question? Yeah. Yes, we've asked that question. And then what does he say? He says, I am. Believe me. Well, even when that's not. Says, wait a minute. I'll be. I'll be. I'll be, I'll be you. I'll be you. Before, I, believe me is not you're an not answer. answer. Believe me is not an answer. That's what I said. Okay. To then, him, then what? Rob is, then what? No. Wait. Then what does he say? He said he keeps going on and on and on in circles. Okay, and then, you act like you have so, some special so, thoughts Rob, that you think we're yeah, not adding to this. This is, this is what everybody thinks, and it's one of the great frustrations of covering Donald Trump. People say, you know, you should really you should, ask him. You I go, be well, we did. I'll send you the clip. You know, you should really fact, ask him this. We're make and him so a finally, and we will. So finally, you say, would you like me to actually get on top of him and, and like pin him down with my Maybe knees? Maybe I should stick my heel down his throat I mean, the and thing tell him is, he's not answering the and, question. And, would that make you feel it's good? One of no. the, <laughs> I just want to say it before anybody else says a word. <laughs> because first of all, God forbid your guests should be allowed to talk, as we just discovered. But before anybody else says a word, when we were sort of talking about the clip today, I was, I was emailing to Jonathan and to Wolfie saying, I can only watch this thing 60 seconds at a time. I have to keep stopping to projectile vomit. Um, and so they just played. I had to listen to another minute and 27 of this, and I like for the second time, and that was really kind of kind of cruel. So I don't know, James. There's so many things wrong with the conversation they're having, including the fact that it's so incredibly self-referential. Um, right. Exactly. That's the that's the whole point. Is that that it's clear that they see themselves on that show as being what the show is about, and so they're not really reporting at all. And I, the, the, when uh, they're sitting there at the desk and uh, the outrage is being expressed, I'm looking at Micah Brzezinski and thinking she's sort of like Queen Elizabeth who suddenly had like a dead cat thrown in front of her or something. And, and, and it, 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 like this is like not done and you, you can't do it this way. And it's a textbook example of how not to have an exposition of actual ideas that actually might <laughs> actually advance the political discussion about reality and it's so annoying reality. it is so like like i mean yes i know why would you be watching if that's what you wanted but i it, it's just such an example of so many aspects um, i i referenced another thing where uh, pat buchanan was uh, interviewed on uh, national public radio and he espoused some of the most obnoxious thoughts. And they just went on. Renee Montaigne just went on to the next question. There was no sort of comeback. Wait a minute. Let's have but, a conversation about what you just said. Right. But I mean, I think I think the, that that was a really good clip to choose from that interview, because the, I think he really hit a nerve for them. And they were they were they were sort of yeah. falling all over themselves because he was saying, you know, you, you don't let the person talk. And I mean. You know, I would say that, the, you know, like one of the most the prime characteristics of a narcissist is an inability really to look at themselves. So they couldn't really react by saying, wow, do we do that? No, they couldn't have that reaction. <laughs> and don't you think the but producer then they was had in to, their ears saying, stop him, stop him? Yeah, maybe. But um, but I think but they but it really, really you could tell that it really bothered them. Like, what are you yeah. talking about? How can you, you 
possibly accuse all us week long about yeah. this kind of thing and about yeah. Trump specifically. So this was their one opportunity to sort of really say, but really, no, we've been doing our due diligence. We're yeah. real journalists, and I, and I yeah. couldn't help believe, think that they really believe that. Like they, oh, they, they were really it. saying, like, what do you mean we don't do that? We did ask a follow up. How could you possibly say that we didn't ask a follow up? The, they really, literally didn't understand. There were so many moments where I really almost did have to hit pause and projectile vomit. And very early on, Rob Reiner, setting up his point, says, well, this isn't really a hard news show. And, and Joe Scarborough <laughs> stops him and says, I think it's a little bit more hard news than just about anything out there. Walter Cronkite is gone. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, you're taking and, up the mantle of Cronkite? Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Hmm. It, yeah I mean, and, when the Dalai Lama dies, that won't make you an enlightened being. All right. right? <laughs> the, that's, that, that, that's, the, that's the real problem is that none of these people actually go out in the field and actually do investigative reporting, actually get in somebody's face, actually have a conversation that they don't let go of. They're sitting in a studio where they're sort of like like pampered pets who are always on display. They're expected to behave a certain way. They're making money with the advertisers. And they really don't perceive that there's a problem there. That, well, I think that or, that was that was a just, natural reaction. They just them. accept like, oh, well, you know, he's never going to tell the truth. So there's nothing you can do. Yeah. They, like they stop right there. As yeah, opposed by the way, to is saying, he calling again? Fine, right. That's an OK thought. Yeah. But the, the next thing is to say it. And I think that was Rob Reiner's point. OK, it's fine that, you know, he keeps going around in circles. But then you need to then say this is what's happening. And then he, Trump will defend it because that's what he does. But then you don't ask him back on your show again. or You right. don't accept the phone call. Or answer his phone calls. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I, I love that. Say. I love that um, Rob Reiner brought up the Chris Matthews interview uh, uh, of Trump because it's true that when he really pushed him about abortion and he kept pushing and pushing and pushing, that was a really great moment. This is, I mean, we've brought this up in the past, but this is something that overseas journalists sometimes do a little bit better than American journalists. And they're yes, yeah. the famous, uh, I can't even think of her name anymore, but the BBC interviewer who really kind of grilled George W. Bush mm-hmm. in a way that he hadn't been right. much ever here. That idea of the fourth, fifth, and, and sixth-tier question. Well, I think that's uh, one of the reasons for that is that in many other places, I think including uh, among European journalists, I think they have much more leeway to actually be in charge of actually going after uh, an interview, getting the interview, and actually having the interview and not having it something that seems to be packaged. I mean, by the time you get to the Morning Joe show and everybody's sitting around, it's like, wait a minute, what? where is the journalism? Where, where is that going to arise in that context? And I think that when somebody it has the confidence to be able to ask difficult questions and then listen to the answer and then come back and keep coming back, that is something that makes you as a viewer feel, well, okay, this person, I trust this person to actually be serious yeah, and we so don't have that very often. Yeah, and where do they get the idea that the viewers don't want that? I mean, they must have, you know, like, because I, I feel like that is what the viewers do really want. But then um, why why do we get that so little? You know, I will say, at the risk of being somewhat meta and self-referential, so I got in a little bit of trouble yesterday. Yesterday, we I wanted to do a show about the parallel narrative going on on right-wing talk radio, conservative talk radio, whatever you want to call it. And so um, we invited – it was very hard 
to get conservative talk radio hosts to agree to go on a public radio show. Almost everybody turned us down. Uh, but we got a couple of them. And then Michael Harrison, who's a kind of expert on talk radio and runs Talkers magazine and seems to kind of lean in that direction a little bit himself. So the, they were on. And my thought about this was, OK, I've invited them to be on my show. And, and I want people just to hear them, you know, and hear what they say. And we, I'd made sure that we'd pulled a lot of clips from various shows so that if they acted too nice in this context, we would be playing a lot of clips all the way through indicating what the tenor of these shows are. Nonetheless, I, I got a little bit of pushback saying, you know, why didn't you challenge them more? Why didn't you, you know, denounce them? <laughs> I love, you know, your, your sort of point that you were a host. And I think that is, in essence, the difference. There is that moment where you invite someone into your home and you don't say you cannot use the bathroom and you cannot eat my food. You know, you've invited them into your space. And so you do you have to allow them to talk. You do have to allow them to say their piece. And and it's different than investigative journalism. Totally. I mean, I think you that's know, that, you're talking about context. Right. I mean, and I think context and where you're where you're really having some sort of informative expose of what is the, what are they doing? What are they saying is very different from actually questioning somebody and actually right. nailing them down in an interview where you're actually you're, you're talking about the content of what they said. Yeah, yeah I think but a lot I, of it is if somebody's running for something, too, you have to ask them a lot of questions. Yeah. Right, yeah. Of, yeah. Of, exactly. You know, no, but also, did you have any um, remorse about that, Colin? I, mean, I, I don't. As it, the older I get, the less I feel like I need to be in an argument with every, everybody that, that says something that I don't agree with. And I really do think, you know, the legal expression is res ipsa loquitur. The thing speaks for itself. And I do think sometimes just playing stuff and, like, letting people exhibit who they are, you know, People can kind of figure out, you know, <laughs> people can draw their own conclusions a lot of the time. I wanted, before we ran out of time, this is one point that I made in the emails, and I don't know how you guys reacted to it. I, I've been trying to understand my own revulsion yeah. towards Morning Joe. I mean, I really have like a problem with it. I mean, there's lots of shows that we don't like. I don't watch Fox and Friends. I don't, you know, um, and I do think it's there's what I call the one foot in heaven, one foot in hell phenomenon, which is, you know, th this is a show that kind of straddles being naughty and transgressive and speaking something that they think is, you know, a sort of naughty truth to, to naughty power or something. And then the other foot in the world of legitimate journalism, I mean, they actually do think that they're an important Cronkite level source of, uh, of hard news. And I, I think it's very hard to have it both ways. You know, you, you either have to be yeah. like, Howard Stern and Imus, you know, be a Howard Stern and Imus, jump into the toilet and just stay there and have yeah. a great time, or be Robert Siegel, you know, and 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 be in, you know, and, or Charlie Rose or whoever your choice is. But you can't be naughty and nice or naughty and but really constructive about the national conversation. You can, but I don't think it works in this kind of a format. But wait, in that kind of, you know, but I mean, it's kind of funny because we just started talking about Larry Wilmore and comedians, and we all seem to agree that. John Oliver, you know, various comedians actually do straddle both of those. I think, they? no, I think they're in the naughty world. I, I mean, if good things happen, fine. But every single one of them, like John Oliver in that long, long interview he, he did for New York Magazine, he said, let's be clear about this. I'm in this for the laughs. I am trying to get you to laugh. If it turns out you learn some larger truth about something, that's fine, but that's a byproduct, you know, and every single one of those guys will tell you that. It's that weird for me to buy that out of Oliver. Mm -hmm. yeah. I hear yeah. I hear that <laughs> as a, a line to say, mm -hmm. but when you do a 25-minute piece on encryption, mm -hmm. yeah. you are actually doing the opposite. Yes, And absolutely. Morning Joe, they 
aren't really interested in either. They don't want to be offensive, so they can't really mm-hmm. put their feet all the way in hell. And I don't think either of them, honestly, are actually interested in being journalists. They are TV right. personalities, and they're really interested in that. Mm-hmm. They're not right. interested in offending a guest for fear they will not come on. And I don't think that's just the producers saying, please don't offend the guest. We want to have that guest back. I think it's also themselves. It's their own personal you know, and they don't of, want to be offended either. Right. And so, they're, I, I mean, I, I sort of feel like is sentencing them to watch uh, a year of tapes of Hughes Rudd doing the CBS Morning yeah. News, you know, in the 1970s, which was really like a, a, a hard news journalistic thing filled with his comments about what people were saying and very opinionated. It would be a lesson in exactly the difference with what they're doing and something like, uh, you know, really like a, a fluff show that doesn't have any hard journalistic content. But they really seem to have fooled themselves, which I think is why it's so annoying right. what they're doing. All right. We have to stop here. I could talk about this all day long, but I would mostly be crying probably. <laughs> um, Sarah, let's take a break and then let's go. All right, we have two more topics to go, and not much time to go through them, but I think we can uh, do them a certain amount of justice. So, as most people know, there's a reboot of the Ghostbusters on the way. Uh, it's uh, Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, and uh, Leslie Jones uh, in the places of the people that you remember from the Ghostbusters. And in the way of things, uh, a trailer uh, dropped this week, and we've now <laughs> reached a point where people actually review trailers and discuss trailers as if they were something, some kind of freestanding content, a thing in and of itself. So, first of all, because there's nothing better than listening to a trailer on the radio. Uh, Let's hear uh, 30 seconds of the trailer. We have dedicated our whole lives to studying the paranormal. Now there's sightings all over the city. There are people out there that need our help. Holtzman, you're a brilliant engineer. Aaron, no one's better at quantum physics than you. We can provide a real service. Join the club. You guys are really smart about this science stuff, but I know New York. And I can borrow a car from my uncle. <laughs> uh, you didn't disclose that the vehicle was going to be a hearse. It's a Cadillac! All right, so uh, just uh, put a bunch of pictures uh, along with that in your head, and then you'll get it. So uh, as of about 12.30 today, there were 735,000 dislikes uh, of this trailer on uh, YouTube. 31 million people had uh, looked at it. So uh, Jonathan McPants says that's one thumbs down for every 42.3 views. But anyway, it's being heralded as the most disliked. He's like the Nate Silver. <laughs> Sorry. I love uh, him. It's being heralded as, uh, heralded as the most disliked trailer ever, the most disliked thing ever, the worst thing that ever happened. Uh, there are uh, horrible comments affixed to it. I don't know. Irene, what's the most interesting thing about this? Just that 31 billion people have voluntarily watched a trailer they didn't have to watch? Yeah, well, that in itself is fascinating. But um, I, I wonder, what is it that they dislike? I mean, I, I have some things that I dislike about it, but I, I don't know if that's, you know, maybe just people just, I mean. Well, what did you dislike about it? Um, uh, well, I just think, you know, the stereotypes are so, like, why can't you know, Leslie it's Jones be the Le- Leslie Jones should be the physicist. Guess what that person looks like? And right, right. She, and Kate McKinnon. Imagine. Kate McKinnon should be should be in that role because she would be so funny saying it's a Cadillac, you know. <laughs> and Leslie Jones should be the physicist, you know. But I, I also do. I have just to say one thing I don't hate is the line. No one's better. No one's better at quantum physics than you. You know, like it's sort of like you know women's empowerment. No one's better at quantum physics than you. You know that's <laughs> kind of funny. But um, 
you know, so that's where I would start. All right, but I'm being told it actually dropped a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm way behind the curve. Okay, well, 31 million <laughs> then over, over three weeks is like, you know, a drop in the pit. The rage so, was growing. Right. So I don't want us to fall into the trap of re- re- reviewing the trailer, but we're reviewing the trailer, uh, and we're worried about stuff about, yeah, are they going to Ernie Hudson, Leslie Jones, and uh, all this kind of stuff. But I'm just also wondering, this is very visceral, very visceral, right. you know, very, it's, it's more than that somehow, right? And I'm I, wondering whether, in fact, well, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I think it goes to the fact that it doesn't feel anything like the old one and I don't have a whole lot of like personal um, uh, attachment to the first one except for the fact that I recognize the the tune immediately the yeah. I go oh my god that's like somewhere in the back of my mind in my childhood it's is this song so many times yeah. for different purposes <laughs> but I but I I think that that's that's where the outrage comes from because it doesn't look at all like the old one it doesn't feel at all like the old one and from what I I can gather from Melissa McCarthy it really isn't anything like the old one it sort of takes the framing of Ghostbusters but it's not really the Ghostbusters story you know and I think that's where the outrage comes from you're like this is the thing that I was I was so familiar with I was looking forward to seeing it continue and it's disappointing me I think the outrage has the fingerprints of Sony all over it. <laughs> I, I know I'm a resident conspiracy theorist, but really, come on. I mean, could you, you couldn't buy those tens of millions of views. I mean, they're getting well, all this for did. free. And then they've got this, what, 750,000 angry people. Every single one of them is probably going to buy a ticket. I mean, this is exactly <laughs> what they could have. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, they're starting out from a point of view of selling a name. It's a familiar name, which is golden in Hollywood. So then you decide, okay, so you've got to update it, and then you update it in a certain way. Okay, let's do it with women, but don't let's break any stereotypes about like right. who the black person is, for example, in the crew and how she acts, and 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 so it, or it how has a quantum physicist acts. Right? Uh, well, exactly. <laughs> yes, you break that stereotype. right. And so so you've got a sort of committee uh, approach to it already. That I think is, I mean, you have to look behind something like this. It doesn't look like to me something spontaneous that suddenly, oh, the trailer escaped and people are reacting a certain way. I I might bet all the revenue from all of Rob Reiner's films that it won't be a blockbuster Ghostbusters. Well, you, I, I don't quite I, buy that. It's I, first of all, can I just way. say I, I, one thing? I don't. I don't think it. First of all, I don't think this Ghostbusters can be anything like the, the original Ghostbusters. Was two things. It was an attempt uh, by uh, a group of people to make a Mar- Marx Brothers movie. Right? right. This was an attempt to do a Marx Brothers movie without the Marx Brothers available, but with some very <laughs> talented comedians available to do something like that. But it also was released in 1984. So really, kind of the you know uh, one of the first kind of up yours uh, mov- uh, movies directed at the Reagan era. This this movie is a rejection of all authority. Think about what happens in the movie. You know, these these kind of iconoclastic uh, uh, charlatans and idiots <laughs> and, and also genuinely informed you know, parapsychologists, they come up against everybody. And the mirror is wrong and the archbishop is wrong and the, everybody's wrong, right? Everybody's wrong. Nobody understands what's happening. The EPA shows up, shuts the thing down by mistake. This is Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and that whole gang saying, screw you. The people who are running things right now don't know anything, you know? And, and we're going to take over in this very bacchanalian, Dionysian way and say everything's going crazy and we're on top of it. Uh, and I don't I think you can't make that movie right now. Whatever but this movie can. is. But you can. I mean, we just had a segment where we talked about all of these comedians doing this kind of thing on their shows. You absolutely can. But you choose You and could. You could you Yeah, you <laughs> could, but you can. It's not that these kinds of women comics don't exist. It's that you didn't 
collect that cast. You didn't pull in Sarah Silverman and, you know, and Whitney Cummings. You didn't pull in those gals to tell a story that resembles, you know, a, a truth against power. That's actually kind a really, it's, it's a really great point. Yeah, actually. I think that's, that, that's really true. You know, I, I was thinking of another thing, too, that um, we showed Trainwreck, the Amy Schumer mm-hmm. movie, and it was really interesting to see the reaction of some students. I mean, some people really thought it was great, but other people were, like, horrified that this was like too recognizable kind of thing. And and yes, and it was really shocking and you could feel it in the in the audience. And it's an interesting thing that um, now that the people who make movies like that and getting the investment together, the people who are going to put the money up to it really want to be reassured. And they're they're not likely to be. I I would think that if they if they had seen the original Ghostbusters, they maybe missed the point. Mm -hmm. And and they're really looking to be reassured that the company is looking to be reassured that this is a a mass market movie and it's not going to be something that falls by the wayside. It seems to be the Papoulian thread, right? That no one is paying attention to what the sort of the masses actually want. You're not listening to the voices, uh, you know, and you're creating the stuff and just hoping that... That's the Papulian yeah. thread of 2016, I right, think. Exactly. All right. exactly. So, exactly. so actually, we have to pivot away from this uh, and just uh, quickly talk about, all right, so if we can't uh, find succor in, in the chaos uh, from late night television or from movies, maybe music can do it for us. Radiohead has been away for a long time, five five years, I think. So uh, they've, they've, they dropped one track this week. It's called Burn the Witch. Let's hear a little bit of that. You're just going to have to catch up with the rest of it on your own. Um, I'm trying to think about how to frame this. So, Irene, I'll just start with your reactions. This is just, as a Radiohead fan, I just, I, I'm just in heaven listening to this, actually. It's the spirit, uh, you know, like the, the, they're sort of um, moody, slightly depressed, but also engaged and earnest at the same time vibe that I feel in this. And it just, I, I just, I can just like slide right into it. You know, um, Tanisha, uh, last week we talked for like 35 minutes about I Lemonade. Know. And you didn't get to come for that. I can't believe yeah. it. And I didn't listen to it either. I've got to catch it on and, demand. And the week before is Death of Prince. And I, I sort of didn't I, see this coming, you know. Uh, and I, 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 and I don't know, I have some very strong reactions to what I've heard so far Radiohead, but I'll just throw it to you. Uh, I guess this is like the nostalgia segment, because for some reason, Radiohead makes me think of my teenage years. And so hearing them again sort of thrust me back into that. But I also was listening to it with sort of older ears or more sophisticated ears, because I was hearing, you know, the strings and the sort of orchestral nature of their work in a way that I had never heard before. And so it went from just being this emo kind of music that I recall from my youth to like really beautiful, strong music. And I suspect part of why it took so long for them to come out with this album is that one of those videos must have taken like two and a half years to put together because the two videos that accompanied um, the two songs that they released this week are beautiful works of art. And apparently that's the way folks are bringing out albums these yes. days. And so, James, um, to that point, first of all, the first the video for this song is a kind of a Pixar-y, 
I don't know if it's stop action or not, but it's some kind of uh, pixar kind of animation, um, and, and it's ba- clearly based on The Wicker Man. <laughs> and, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but the lyrics, I think, are pretty much about xenophobia, European xenophobia, American xenophobia, the yes. rise of nationalism in all these countries. It's Burn the Witch. It's Red Crosses on Houses, which is, uh, exactly. which is a reference to the plague. Uh, I, I think it, well, this is very much a response. <laughs> you know? It goes to the heart of that, yes, and the, the, um, the exclusion of refugees and the 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 whole sort of sense of us and them and the veneer on the surface i mean it, it, i thought the animation if it is pixar it's certainly been manipulated to the point that it looks like it was done with stop motion yeah. um just extraordinarily uh um very refreshing to see uh, amidst the very slick kind of pixar animation um which is of a different type but the the whole nature of of that song and the and the um all of the elements in it and 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 linking it to wicker man i i, I was absolutely floored by it when i first saw it i thought that's a, that this is an extraordinary statement and just like it says so many things about uh, hiding from real truths and actually this if this can become a, a, a wide currency and this becomes a really popular song i hope it does Spoiler alert, the nod and the wink at the end of the xenophobe who actually gets away. I was like, yes, yeah, yeah. you know, thank you yeah, for right. for not making it a happy ending. Right. So I, we were just digesting this and thinking, all right, well, clearly there's an album on the way. And there is. I believe it drops on Sunday at 7 p.m. or I don't know what time zone that is. But um, – but then today, like this morning, uh, this thing, Daydreaming, came out. It's a Paul Thomas Anderson video. Uh, there, there was like a trailer for the video first, and then, then there was the six-minute or so song. Um, and and I, I admit I'm a little strung out right now. I'm a little tired. I've had a hard <laughs> week. Uh, I'm probably looking for transcendence. I'm desperate for transcendence. Here it was. Well, this dropped so close to showtime that uh, I don't think any of us have had a really a lot of time to go through it. Although, I, I will say it brought me to tears. Uh, it, it, there are all these, uh, there's this modulation uh, about two-thirds of the way through that is just this incredible musical payoff. Uh, and as you're beginning to hear here, there's a lot of production going on, a lot of backwards recorded noises, kind of reminiscent of Strawberry Fields and stuff like that. And But just listen, listen, I mean, even the, even the, the chord change that you're hearing right here, uh, I don't know. 
I mean, am I just strung out, or is this some kind of uh, transcendent masterpiece that uh, might get me through the next uh, 48 I'll, hours? I'll <laughs> vote for the transcendent masterpiece. I think it's interesting because so many of Radiohead's lyrics are impossible to, to decipher unless you look them up. Uh, whereas in this one, the ne- lyrics are quite clear, and yeah, they're very yeah. evocative. Dreamers, they never learn. You know, like it's it, And so, yeah, transcendent. Yeah, I, no, I had that. Yeah, I had that. I'm actually grateful that I'm listening to it again on these headphones because there's so much background. Um, those wind chimes that are just gorgeous. I didn't hear when I listened to it the first time, and it sort of ends in this revenant esque uh, landscape moment, which is great. Yeah. But that line, "Dreamers, they never learn," brought me to tears because mm-hmm. that's my, you know, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> James, you get the last word. Well, I I thought it was a dreamy masterpiece. <laughs> Not to. Uh, 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 I can't think of anything else really. I, it struck me in the same way. I had that when I when I heard it. I just was completely transported. I didn't expect it at all. It's just an incredible piece. Yeah, I needed this song. So I, I should tell you that our my goal for Tuesday. I haven't. I'm not even close yet, is to get Stephen Metcalf of Slate uh, on to talk about his piece about Donald Trump uh, as a baby boom phenomenon, and then Stephen Metcalf of Hartford on to talk about Radiohead. Our Radiohead, um, Radiohead is, by the way, embraced by orchestras and symphonic players and, and chamber group players, probably like no rock group ever. I mean, they, they are more interested in this music uh, than serious musicians have ever been in rock, including the Beatles, I think. Anyway, uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back with some recommendations. They never learn. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mike Barnacle. For show pages, articles, and the secret plan to change here and now to Afternoon Robin, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, our salute to ugliness. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, so uh, we're going to get some recommendations from the panel. We'll start over here with James Hanley. Um, two things. Uh, one, a reminder about the Trinity Film Festival at 5 o'clock tomorrow, Saturday, at Cine Studio, um, which is uh, filmmakers from all over the country. Uh, coming to an amazing film festival, 5 o'clock tomorrow. Um, But the other thing is a book that I've been reading that really makes me, reminds me of my concern that ever since the beginning of the Reagan era, how government was turned against us and was the enemy and wasn't us. There's a book by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, American Amnesia, which is just amazing to read through. And you realize how much damage has been done to us by turning the government into something that is an enemy and that this has hidden the real enemies, which are the, who are the manipulators, the people who've stolen all the money and the people who have got the bank accounts in foreign countries and hidden hidden assets and they have these huge abilities to control our political system. This was all a subterfuge to hide to hide what they were doing and that we were blaming the government or a lot of people were blaming the government. I don't think I ever felt that way, but this book is really amazing, American Amnesia. All right, Tanisha, what have you got? Uh, It's Mother's Day weekend, so a very loving happy Mother's Day to mine. Uh, And in that spirit, TheaterWorks is opening The Call, a really gorgeous piece about uh, how one becomes a parent in this modern time. really looks at adoption, uh, transracial adoption, and its effects on the couple and their their families and friend units. It's really lovely, lovely work. Director Jen Thompson, Drama Desk nominee this year, as well as a Lortel uh, nominee, is helming 
this ship, and I encourage you all to come out. Um, some really, really gorgeous work happening on that stage, and I'm really excited about that. Also, on, in a fun way, Dirty 30's second uh, event in their threesome of events is next Friday. It's a bar crawl. It starts at Dish at 7 o'clock. Uh, head to the TheaterWorks website. Click on Dirty 30 um, to find out more information. And I should truly endorse you nosers because you remind me that there are things that are happening that I should read or eat or or take a look at that reminds me that I'm like an autonomous person. We're trying so to find I'm a book grateful. you can eat. You can read the book and then eat it. You know, and that'll just be Apparently to... Tom Brady's got a book that you could burn because it's made <laughs> out of all of wood. 200 bucks, oh. but, you know, there's that. Okay. What have you got? <laughs> um... I just thought of this one while we were talking about Radiohead, and there's this band called Radio Dread, and it's like a reggae version of OK Computer, <laughs> the the Radiohead album. You know, there's all these orchestral versions and everything, but the reggae version, it's really interesting. And they also do Dark Side of the Moon. They call it, they're cool. called Radio Dread. Um, and also, this I'm reading a book that's described as uh, Graham Greene from the point of view of the Viet- Vietnamese guy called The Sympathizer. Mm. And I'm just really, really enjoying it. If you like Graham Greene, it's a really good book about a, and, and also his experience in the United States it's, as it's a, other. I, I've read it read too. It's, it's a refugee book, you know, in a really interesting way. It's so, really good. Yeah, but the, another era of refugees. So yeah, begins with the fall of Saigon uh, and then this migration to the West Coast. And you um, get inside his head in an interesting, wonderful way. He's the an sympathizer. In, he's an interesting. We did a whole show about unreliable narrators. He's an interesting and oh. perhaps somewhat unreliable narrator. Um, all right. So uh, I don't know why, but because I. I think I don't go to restaurants, but I'm going to endorse two more restaurants this week after uh, in uh, New Haven, Elm City Social on College Street. It's like, a, have you been there? It's very cool. It's first of all, it's very hip. You know, it's like it, it's a restaurant that you could very easily find in San Francisco or really even Paris in terms of its look and feel. But then the food's kind of trendy, funky. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a nice place to go for lunch on Saturday. My son and I were there last Saturday. We had a, a great time. Uh, and then uh, to the north uh, up here in West Hartford, has anybody endorsed shoe yet? I'm not sure if, if anybody yeah, has. I have. You have you endorse you already? Yeah. Okay, so traditional Chinese cooking. It's over by a, a so dawn, good. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's not like the gloppy Chinese food you get other places. A little bit more oil in your dish, a lot, lot less kind of goopy brown stuff, uh, a lot and of spices. A lot of spices too. Yes, be brave. All right. So, and then the last thing that I'll endorse, uh, if you uh, have time to kind of seek out the podcast or the seven p.m. rebroadcast of it, uh, my colleague and friend John Dankowski uh, did. He's wrapping up his uh, career at where we live as we get uh, ready for the exciting transition to Lucy Nalpathanchel, but John, who's just invented a kind of great radio here in Connecticut, is doing a few last wonderful shows. And today he was with Kate Callahan, who we all love and who's our new state troubadour. It's a wonderful show. The music is great. The conversation is very moving. John gets verklempt. Uh, and um, and then I think it's tonight that uh, Rebecca Castellani, the uh, uh, the Don Kirshner of Collinsville, is uh, got Kate Callahan <laughs> uh, and uh, Carolyn Doctorow and Laura Herskovich are all playing together at Bridge Street in Collinsville. So uh, that's plenty. So, but anyway, seek out the show. Uh, listen to the podcast. It's really good. I don't understand why people are so upset about the new Ghostbusters movie. I'm stoked because since it's all female, it's only going to cost 70% of the original ticket price.